I think you gotta unmute yourself there, Alex. There he is. I'm back. Welcome what? back to the Poor Sports Podcast. How's it going? This is uh this is a new hat to the podcast. I know this. We got like a metallic Mariners logo. What's the shirt? Wow. Can I see the shirt? It is uh here we go. Let's see. Oh baby. It's the uh, All Star Game shirt from this year. Yeah. I love that. It's like retro yeah. style. It almost looks like the Seahawks have the throwback uniforms. Uh, yeah, I uh, I saw this shirt at the uh, All Star Game festivities, and it was like the only thing I wanted. Most <laughs> of the most of the All Star Game stuff, it's like typically not great quality. It's kind of all, you know. It used to be back in the day for any big sporting event, there was like a thousand different designs, different all sorts of merch, right? And yeah. now everything gets unified. It's all like Nike or Fanatics or, you know, it's all streamlined stuff. But this one stood out, so I I had to get this one. Did you ever play in like Little League All-Star tournaments where there would be like a what now would look like a mobile meth lab that was printing shirts for uh, <laughs> it would have like the two they would have the the every roster and then they'd put the stars yeah. next to your name that was the big yeah. selling feature. I had a few of those shirts growing up and uh, it's wild now. I mean in the in the internet age that that'll never happen again. It's like here's the name of every child in town on the back of a t-shirt. Well, only the supple athletic ones actually <laughs> it turns out. Yeah, it was uh, it's kind of crazy that we ever did that in the first place. My parents now my parents can be their own kind of way, but they didn't even want me wearing like the the team hoodies with the last name on the back. They were like Dang. They were just they were early adopters of the uh, be afraid of everybody movement. And now gotcha. that now, now that you can look up and see where all the, uh, the sex offenders live near your house, I think everybody's like in line with that. But man, <laughs> where do you fall on? Because there's almost like every bit of data supports that it's safer to live than it is than it's ever been. But we all are more scared than we ever were. So which is it for you? Were we just like like stupidly ignorant before? Or are we overprotective now? Yeah, it was just ignorance back in the day. I mean, now it's like, <laughs> now if you let your kids go outside and run around, like every house on the block has some sort of security camera that yeah. you can, you could theoretically see anything happen, right? Like we could all go back, like back in the 90s, no one had security cameras. Like rich people might have had security. That was about it. But now it's like, man, everything's available. It's just... It's, it's the information. It's the information age. Everyone's uh, everyone's scared. This is uh, we got Robert Cashmore, by the way. Not uh, I know him. Robert Cashmore, a comedian, weighing in with uh, what up, Mudasaka. Thank you for keeping it clean on the on the podcast. This is a family Dynamite program. Drop. That's yeah. why we're talking about uh, child abductions right now, is because this is a family <laughs> program. Uh, speaking of uh, child abductions, I'm at home with my child right now, so this podcast could get preempted by that. And I'd like someone to abduct her at this point. We've had her. She's uh, these kids that you'll you'll find this out as you get them back into daycare is like you pay for a month of daycare and you're lucky if you use 75% of the days of daycare, you know, I know, I know about the daycare crisis. I'm all too familiar with it because of friends who, uh, who have young kids in daycare. Um, look, I think we all appreciate our daycare workers. It's nice that you yes, take care of other people's kids for money. That's awesome. But also they really have the market cornered on a racket right now. There's nothing you can do about it. If the daycare says they're taking the day off for whatever, 
because some kid got a cough or whatever. Nobody can nobody can stop. Yeah, well, and unfortunately, my kid had like a hundred point five degree fever yesterday, and so now she's got to be home for two days because it's got to be twenty four hours removed from her last fever. So I'm hoping she's asleep right now. It's the only reason we're able to do the podcast. I have a very narrow window to do this podcast in, which means I think we got to get to some topics. Before that, though. It's a lot uh, of topics today. Big day. March 15th, 16th, we're recording a special at Tacoma Comedy Club in uh, Tacoma, Washington, 6th and Proctor location. Come on out to that. I need you there. I need you there more than I need anything in my life, to be honest with you. Wow. I won't be there, so. <laughs> well, yeah, not you. Anybody but Alex. Alex is uh, banned from the club, actually. He had a real incident. I did a show last night where a woman insisted that I needed to get a hysterectomy over and over again. So if you want to check out Casey McLean Comedy on YouTube, got a hot clip coming your way pretty soon. Where was this show last night? It was at a, a restaurant in Port Orchard, Washington. I was open for opening for my friend Gabriel Rutledge. So, and, yeah, uh, I, they were I do. Rowdy. I know that Gabe Rutledge is like a pretty big draw these days. No offense to you. Yeah. No, he's <laughs> yeah, he's blowing up as he deserves to. By the way, he's like twenty five years into comedy and one of the best yeah. in the country. Yeah, pretty pretty big act, pretty big name these days. And uh, but Monday in Port Orchard, that's got to be, well, it's got to be an interesting group of people that show up. Yeah. That. Well, first off, it's apparently the only comedy show this place does. They have Gabe every year, which is a great choice. I've been to a bunch of these events with him where they're like, "We don't even really like comedy. We're just Gabe fans." I did a show at the Elma State Fair where I literally was on the back of a cattle trailer with like a horrible PA. Uh, the mic cord was like six feet long, so they had this huge trailer as a stage, but I could barely get move away from the speaker. Um, I've done a bunch of wild gigs with Gabe, and he's like starting to not do the craziest gigs, but he used to be like a say yes to everything kind of guy, sure. and Hustler, he is yeah. to his detriment a lot of times before, and now he's finally starting to filter some of those out. Hopefully, they'll matriculate down to a piece of shit like me, you know? Yeah, you're there for the sloppy seconds. Let's not yeah, give me those sloppy seconds. I have uh, no pride at all. No, sometimes those are the best, you know? Yeah. Take what you can get. Um, all right, what, what do we got today? We got so, so many things. So many things. Well, we've t we talked about it. We've talked about it ad nauseum at this point, but Ryan Grubb is finally the, uh, finally the Seahawks offensive coordinator, and we have citizen journalism to thank for breaking the story. We have the, uh, we're not allowed to say the, the big game's name, so I think we call it the Deep State PSYOP, and the the leader of that PSYOP did the, not the, get proposed to. The, uh, the, the Super Bowl <laughs> and the NCAA tournament have gotten way too weird about who can and can't say their name. It's oh, like, dude. It's, if you're, I think it's if you're making any money off an event, you cannot use the name of, of oh, Super Bowl or March Madness. We are in the clear. Yeah, obviously we're good. We can say whatever we want. But yeah, yeah. it's just, it's just, it's crazy, man. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so then I, I want to talk about, or we, we have this uh, on, on our topic sheet at, at least, what Patrick Mahomes' legacy looks like at this very moment, because there's a lot of this conversation about if he's the already the GOAT. And I, by the way, the goat, we got to get rid of the goat. I'm done with the goat. Can we just, we don't need to abbreviate it, but also like, uh, where does he rank? Because, and we'll talk about that later. And then finally, the, uh, the star of the Super Bowl. there was a lot of stuff that happened at the Super Bowl. Um, Taylor Swift was the topic du jour. I think that's a, an appropriate use of French, uh, for a lot of people. And I, I think you and I are kind of aligned that like, I don't, I'm not like, I'm pretty agnostic on Taylor Swift's, I, by the way, I think she's like, this was the highest viewed Super Bowl, I think in the history of the Super Bowl. 
It was. It was the, the highest rated TV program since the moon landing, apparently. So if you believe that the NFL is scripted, you might also believe that the moon landing is scripted. Very interesting time for you. Uh, I do think I, I did find it funny that today, this morning, uh, Pearl Jam announced the tour and all the same people that maybe they might have been cool with Taylor Swift, but a lot of people probably weren't cool with Taylor Swift for losing their mind over a Pearl Jam tour. And it's like, this is just this is Taylor Swift for middle aged men. You Did know, you catch any of the uh, the Black National Anthem discourse, by the way? Because what I noticed about the Black National Anthem discourse is quite often the same people who said, there's only one national anthem, not there's not two national anthems, are also the same kind of people who support people showing the Confederate flag, which is very confusing oh, yeah. to me because... Look. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I didn't I didn't actually catch any of the anthem. I wasn't really paying attention to the pre. No, not the anthem stuff. itself. I I was cooking during yeah, every yeah. commercial and all no, that stuff. I understand. But... We we sing about a dozen songs before every big big sporting event now. Yeah. And look, at some point, uh, the type of people that only want to sing certain songs, like the anthem, opened up the doors to all songs. You know, they want now sure. we get now everybody. It's like a talent show before any sporting event occurs, which is fine. If we're gonna go down that road, then it should be available to everybody. It's like. They only want the anthem or their special song sung. It's like, that's just not how it works, man. There are songs for everybody. We've decided we're going to sing songs before sports, even yeah. though they have no relation to one another. And uh, it's like we're incorporating the arts and the sports people. These people typically don't mesh, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, so I say if we're going to sing the national anthem, we should sing all songs. If someone wants to get up there and just start freelancing karaoke, I'm fine with that at this point. Because what else are you going to do pregame? There's nothing else going on. I don't want to watch the players warm up. It's boring. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk. I want to start with the Ryan Grubb to uh, offensive coordinator situation, because this is a move that you and I, or at least I wanted from like a team perspective. I think you wanted it from a fuck Kalen DeBoer perspective. One thing that's kind of funny to me, by the way, is that this has turned into people being like, like uh, Ryan Grubb somehow made a decision to honor the city of Seattle and not just to like, like enrich his bank account. And that he somehow shares the city of Seattle's contempt for Ryan DeBoer when that's probably like one, his most meaningful professional mentor, probably a great friend of his, someone he'd probably go to the mat for. And everyone in Seattle is mad at Kalen DeBoer, but I don't think, I think Ryan Grubb probably owes him an, a huge debt of gratitude at this point. And yeah. so he gets hired as the, uh, as the, and by the way, I don't even think he's officially hired or he's certainly not officially announced as of the last time I looked, but Twitter user, X user, UW, UW commenter, uh, breaks it at Dino's Pub, which is a place that I'm only aware of because you used to go there a lot. I know that it's a place yeah. that it's a Seahawks management haunt. I know it's a sports writer haunt. I know that it's. I, I think I can give a lot of perspective on. Please, if there's one that's, thing I'm, I'm an expert in. It's Dino's Pub. I live. This behind is my it most, the most thing that's most interesting to me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, we can talk about Grub as a whole in just a second. I think. Uh, I think he, he does present an interesting hire, but the actual process of this news breaking, first of all, this UW commenter guy, it took me a while to realize that I know this guy, like actually I was wondering if you him. knew him. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that at first, um, but many years ago and at one of the times I was at Dino's pub, which I would go to most days, uh, I ran into this dude, UW commenter, and he introduced himself to me. And uh, I think prior to this moment in his life, the thing that he was most notable for and you can actually go look this up his name is kyle baldwin and if you go search kyle baldwin and then like seattle or basketball or something local 
at, at one point it was rumored that or thought that he was the youngest high school basketball coach in the state of Washington. He got wow. hired to be the head coach of uh, Hazen High School in Renton when he was 23 years old. There's a, an article on it that another one of my friends wrote in the Tacoma News Tribune many years ago. So go check that out if you're interested in learning more about this guy. But uh, I didn't at one he point. He was 22. His, yeah, he was really young when he got hired, like very, very young. Um, so anyway, Kyle breaks this story uh, just because he happens to be sitting there. And when he broke the story, I didn't know it was Kyle. He's one of those guys that has changed his Twitter handle a bunch over the years. So it's hard to yes. keep track. You know, sometimes you're like somebody pops up in your feed and you just don't recognize their name. And you're like, how'd they get here? And then you kind of do some sleuthing and you find out that it was somebody, you know, who changed their handle a few times. Yeah. So he's one of those guys. Um, apparently, he was sitting there on a date. Wow. Like, yeah, which I don't know if there's going to be a follow-up date. Who knows? We'd have to talk to him, I guess. I think we got to uh, get him on to talk about the date. I know this guy spends a lot of time at Dino's because uh, I've seen him there many, many times after the first time we met. And uh, he just happened to be sitting there. And I was, you know, um, I saw him tweet about it. And I first thing I did was take it back to my group chat with people that, like, really, like, matter when it comes to sure. this sort of thing you know like i have a group chat with these guys that actually cover these teams and i was like hey you guys should probably see this this seems like it might be credible enough like i follow this guy so he can't be a total nut like i do i will cut the nut jobs out of my follows right so sure that's like, why okay. alex unfollowed me years ago i can't even believe it <laughs> so i was like this seems like it might be pretty important and so uh i kind of blew it up a little bit and then the whole thing blew up man like i after i was able to get it out there. And I told these guys, the guys that I told raced down to Dino's to actually, they, they wanted to get a real statement from John Schneider sure. and the team, because, you know, I know, and I saw this kind of play out over the course of this night, as this story is developing. When you're the fan that, that owns the story, quote unquote, and breaks it, of course you want to be credited, but there is like this journalistic pro process that has to occur. You know, the, your statement as a fan is kind of irrelevant until, you know, a journalist who follows a process and ethics and all of that gets a real statement from these guys. So when those guys were able to get there and actually confirm that um, Ryan Grubb, Mike McDonald and Sean Schneider were having beers together, which was just wild, uh, they were able to actually officially break that story. And uh, it is really cool to just see how that sort of thing goes down. I also know, like, when you're just a fan and you you kind of fall back asswards into something like that it's it's a lot to deal with there's like a gamut of emotions as you see your twitter mentions fill up i've been there before like and you go you you really go through the entire spectrum of emotions you're excited obviously first happy because you're getting attention then yeah. you get upset because you see people calling you a liar or talking shit to you right and uh, then you then you react. There's I, I watch this play out with with Kyle on Twitter. He's reacting to the people that are calling him a liar, <laughs> and it's like then he, then you see him pull it back, gets back to excited and happy again, and then you just kind of go back and forth like that. And he's also and just like going to Ian Rappaport and and uh, <laughs> Adam Schefter going, give me credit, give me credit, give like you know. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, there's no. Uh, yeah, and again, I, I like having. Many years ago, being in that position when I was writing and had my own website and you feel like you're owed something when you, quote unquote, break a story. But what you realize is that if a journalist breaks a story, they don't get anything out of it. <laughs> you know, like they don't get paid by the break. You know, they get they're not going to get a raise at work. They'll, they'll get a little bit more notoriety, perhaps. But um, 
you know, and a lot of like, I will say a lot of journalistic outlets have a policy of if they're going to source somebody, they have to source somebody with a real name attached to their account. Like, and a lot of, and I get a lot of people will never attach a real name to an account because they want sure. to protect their own privacy. But I understand why that policy is in place. You can't be, uh, you can't be sourcing nutballs, you know, when they break a story on the NFL, like that's just yeah. not going to work. It doesn't work for a newspaper or an outlet like that. So uh, it was, it was really cool to see like somebody I know be able to be involved in that whole process, break a really big, what ends up being a very, very big story. And then allowing the right people to get in place to kind of like corner the actual team personnel and make them admit that they're hiring this guy. So that was really cool. So what do you, so I will say every time Grubb's name has come up, I've watched you grimace a little bit. I think that you have, you even said last week that you were like, I don't want, I wouldn't, I would have been upset if Ryan Grubb was the coach of my favorite college football team. And I, I disagree. First off, I disagree. Um, but my, I'm curious what has caused you to feel that way? Because I see this guy who's like an offensive innovator. Obviously the NFL sees it going to be the offensive coordinator at Alabama, like to a degree there's like, it's, it's not, I think being the head coach at Washington is a, a significantly more prestigious gig than offensive coordinator at Alabama. But I think those are like two that are actually probably the, like a power four coaching job versus the offensive coordinator at like the biggest and most prestigious uh, football school. They're not that far off. I think that this guy is like, you know, accomplished in a way that's that I think made, made him attractive to me. And also the fact that he's an innovator makes him very, makes me very excited that he's the Seahawks offensive coordinator because they've been so, I mean, it's not just Pete Carroll and through the Daryl Bevel, Brian Schottenheimer, Shane Waldron era, but it goes back to like Jim Mora and Greg Knapp. And uh, even like the Holmgren offenses, to be honest with you, were like, I remember Holmgren was like ba barely or never ran shotgun. Like he was so <laughs> traditional West Coast. We're like two decades or more into these like kind of milk toast, boring offenses. And, you know, it's it's like a bad weather city and they've predicated their, you know, it's the, it through under Holmgren, they had good running backs and a good running game. Obviously, Pete Carroll has prioritized the running game. I understand how that's beneficial in a bad weather city, but I feel like you there's something you don't like about Ryan Grubb. And I want you to I want you on record. That's my new goal for 2024 is to get Alex on record with an opinion because you have a politician's way of slipping around giving your actual opinion and i'm trying to get you this year let's hammer you down no more cowardice give us the real shit i mean i think the ryan grubb as head coach of uw was like not super appealing to me but as offensive coordinator of the seattle seahawks that's much more appealing i think you know you're talking about a guy in grubb who has no head coaching experience. He's only ever worked with one head coach. You know, I think that's a really big thing is like when you have these coordinators that have bounced around and work for a number of different head coaches, they see the different ways to do things and they know the best way to approach a multitude of scenarios, which when you've only worked for one guy, even if that one guy is really good, you really don't have that diversity that you need to, you know, adjust on the fly or adjust when things maybe go poorly. And, you know, it's great that he's had success everywhere he's been because DeBoer's had success everywhere he's been and he's carried Grubb with him. 
Um, but you know, as far as me going from a coordinator who's only worked for one head coach to the head coach of a major college program, that's asking a lot, man. That is a really huge leap. And I'm not saying he couldn't do it or, or maybe wasn't ready for it, but it's obvious based on the direction they chose to go that they didn't feel he was ready for it. And everything that I heard was that while he's a really good coordinator, he might not have been ready to be a head coach of a program with that prestige at that moment. And I think, you know, whether you're going from coordinator to coach or head coach at a small school to a bigger school, there's usually a path that you follow. And uh, it would have been a pretty meteoric leap. He's already had a, a very meteoric rise in a short right. time. And I think, it, you know, it's it's tough to just expect that to keep going at that pace consistently. You really want him to kind of get get some more experience under his belt. And I think, you know, at this point, if, if he succeeds in Seattle with the offense here, he will be either an NFL or a college head football coach in short order. But um, I just didn't feel like the time was right. You know, it's like Utah basketball kind of has the same program, not that people care or pay attention to Utah basketball to the same degree. But for years, people have been wanting Will Conroy, the, the head assistant coach of the basketball team, to have you been take over. My diary? Yeah, take over for Mike Hopkins. And and they want him to take over because he's a legacy. He played here. And uh, he has no head coaching experience. He's never even coached at a small school. So to ask somebody to make that leap is very tough. It's just they just don't know what they're doing. And he's only been an assistant for, like, unsuccessful programs in, in Conroy's case. So it's very, very tough. Yeah, I, I guess to me the – one, I think the thing is, is that like some continuity, probably holding on to some recruits and all that would have been good. But that's a short term thing. I understand how that's not like the you don't make a long term decision based on the short term needs of the program, especially in college football, where and I, I think we're going to have a, a lull in sports that we care about coming up. So we have time to go over these things like what's wrong with NIL and a whole bunch of Seahawks trade stuff that we can talk about. <clears throat> but I I think that like. Just because he doesn't have head coaching experience doesn't it's I think there's potential to be missing out on a great candidate. And I think an example is the uh, Michigan made an internal hire. And I, I don't know. Does Sharon Moore have head coaching experience that I'm not aware of? Uh, yeah, Sharon Moore. He's he. Well, he has. A I know he was bit. head he coach basically coached part of this year, this entire season, pretty much. Well, like half Harbaugh, of it. Come on. Come on. Harbaugh got that, suspended a lot. <laughs> Yeah, that's out. fair. That, I, I guess that's fair. I just I like before I I don't know. I, Fortune favors the bold, and to me, if it's the right candidate, I sh there shouldn't be this like like there's already too much like undue pride and snobbery around college football to me, and especially like a program like Washington that is really I mean they're like in a moment right now where I think they have a chance to truly become one of the elite programs in the country. And I get that that's like, there's a lot of pressure to put that program into the hands of a guy, but is, I, I don't know. I'm just like, I, I like Jed Fish just fine. I think they're going to be fine. I think they'll probably win eight games next year and, and you know, be, if not a, a football college football playoff contender. Uh, I think they're like, that's not out of sniffing range with the, the expansion of the playoff. I just, I don't know. I, I, I like uh, I like big swings, I've realized, and I think this might be why I like comedy because the success rate doesn't have to be high. You get to you could fail eighty percent of the time and just keep the twenty percent that works and move on with another new set, you know? And I yeah, I I think the Seahawks have like a very high variance strategy right now, and I love it. And I'm also at an age 
by the way, where I'm still like invigorated by change. This could change as I get older, obviously. And I, I think about my my uncle who passed away last year, and him watching the Mariners be this like conservative team every single year, and him being frustrated by that. And I kind of hope to be that guy, uh, to be like make a big fucking move, take a risk, win a yeah. championship. I, I think that the chances of the Seahawks winning a championship are increased by these like high variance, very risky decisions they've made. I also think the chances of Mike McDonald being fired after three years have increased by hiring a no experience in the NFL uh, offensive coordinator. But to me, if the I don't, I, I don't need an eleven win team. I want to see a champion, and the, I think you get closer to becoming a champion by making bold decisions. Yeah, I I get the point you're making. I understand that, you know, different fans are going to feel differently. I think the high risk, high reward strategy is obviously more enticing. It's why gambling exists. Sure. You know? Speaking of People which, love- I, 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 uh, I'm a little bit ahead. I made a fair amount of money on the old uh, Kansas City Chiefs, which is exciting. See, that's perfect. Yes. Uh, no, I mean, high risk, high reward is a, it's a good strategy to have if you, um, if you have nothing to lose. I think the interesting thing about both the Seahawks and the Huskies, you know, cons- when it com- comes to Ryan Grubb, I think both teams are kind of on the precipice of being really good. Obviously, we know the Huskies are. They went to the championship this year. So for them, it's just trying to maintain the status quo. For the Seahawks, they've perennially, perennially been a playoff team, just missed out on the playoffs this season and have, you know, expectations. I wouldn't even say aspirations, expectations to get back there immediately. Um, so, you know, what Ryan Grubb brings to the table, and I think anytime you hire a coordinator, um, it, it's much easier to take those risks. You know, if a coordinator yeah. goes bad, you just recycle that guy and go get somebody else next year. When it's the face of your program, whether it's the NFL or college, although I, I would say it probably matters more in college at this point, but your head coach, man, you have to get that hire right. Because if you don't get that hire right, you're setting yourself back many years. You know, in the NFL, it's not as big of a deal if you if you whiff on your head coach now because you can hire a new guy and get right back to the playoffs the next season because of the way that the NFL is designed and the parity in the NFL. In college football now, I mean, if you lose momentum for a second with the way NIL is going, you're really going to be down for a number of years because yeah, it's just, it, it's, you, you have to constantly be bringing in recruits, bringing in guys from the transfer portal and high school recruits and uh, just continuing that churn. There's so much churn in college now that I think the old way of doing things where you just have this established head coach who's been there for 30 years or whatever it might be, that just that's it's going to be tough to work anymore. Unless they're successful, really successful, um, coaches are going to have to find a new way of doing things. And I think Jed Fish does that pretty well. He's a pretty good salesman, and that's important. You know, going out and getting transfers, sure. going out and getting guys out of high school, you got to be a good salesman now, and you have to have the finances to back you. And if you can prove that you can come from a place like Arizona, which maybe didn't have the same financial backing that a place like Washington has, although I'm sure Arizona fans might dispute that. But the reality is Washington does have a little bit more finance to back some of these sports programs. If you can prove that you can do it with a smaller budget, then of course you're going to move up. You're going to get hired by a bigger budget program. And so for college, it's like you cannot risk taking a chance on a guy like Ryan Grubb unless you know he's absolutely a great salesman and can bring a program together for years to come. Because if you think that's not the case, if you think any of those things are going to fall short, 
then you're potentially looking at a five or 10 year rebuild after things fail. It's like the same thing with Jimmy Lake. The Huskies got so lucky with Kalen DeBoer because the way Jimmy Lake took that program, it seemed like it would be down for five, six, seven years. But honestly, they got lucky by the start of the transfer portal era because they could immediately go out and just bring people in, bring in reinforcements without having to develop high school guys over a number of years. And then when you complement that with Ryan Grubb's system, Kalen DeBoer's system, it paid dividends for them. But yeah, overall, I just feel like taking a risk at that level in college football when you just went to the championship, that's a huge, huge risk. And um, I get comparing it to Michigan because they have their in-house guy, but they already know that guy can lead because he's had enough experience coaching while Harbaugh's been on the sidelines. So a little bit different. I want to talk briefly like because we got to move on to the other topics we have because I have a little bit of a hard out. Um but I want to ask a couple brief questions about Ryan Grubb, and it's there's I want to ask you I think three questions. One is, so the Seahawks have Geno Smith under contract. I want to say let's say they keep him all of next year. I think it's uh, like thirty one million dollar thirty one point two million dollar cap hit. So thirty one point two million dollars is the important number for the Seahawks. They can save twenty million dollars. Uh, 20 plus million dollars by cutting or trading him, um, cutting him before the, I want to say it's, it's like Thursday or something like that. It's like really soon. So that's why I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. No, I think it's Friday, but, uh, or by the end of Thursday, but two questions I have a $20 million Geno Smith, $21 million Geno Smith, were he traded, that's what he would cost another team. That would be his, the salary they are on the hook for, I think for the next two years, so like two years, 40-something million dollars with Geno Smith. Does that guy have any trade value? Meaning, could you offer that guy for a seventh-round pick to Minnesota, Atlanta, uh, Tennessee, one of these teams that's maybe looking for a short-term veteran option at quarterback? That's the first question. I don't think so. Yeah, I think okay. Gino, Gino's one of those guys that's going to be more valuable to the Seahawks than – anybody else there's just yeah. no no getting around that and also okay. we know that the market for for kind of like mid-tier quarterbacks in trade is pretty limited because you're they're just not that valuable the cost benefit yeah. is not there like people talking about we've talked about this with justin fields it's like if you're not going to be able to get anything better than like a second round pick for justin fields then what is the market even there is no trade market for these guys really yeah, I mean, I, I I basically agree with you. I think there might be some people who would disagree, but I, I wanted to see how you felt about that. So, so then my next question is to you. Do you think, because we talked about this last week, but I want to kind of put it, again, putting you on record, 2024, Alex, we're getting you on record. <laughs> Drew Locke and Patrick Queen versus Geno Smith and nobody. Or And yeah. I think in both cases, like we talked about, <laughs> We want. I want the Seahawks to draft a developmental quarterback. Be that Michael Penix. Be it in the first round, or they have two third round picks, trading. Uh, you know, up into the second round, whatever. And I want to talk about a bunch as the time goes on in this offseason. We have a lot of time to talk about yeah. scenarios where the Seahawks may be able to acquire more draft capital. But right now, Drew Lock and Patrick Queen, and a young developmental quarterback, or Geno Smith, no Patrick Queen. Which what is the which one is a better option? Um, well, obviously the one that gets you a second player is a better option, I think. Because but it is, I but think, that is like that is a thing. Like we we talk yeah. about the money, like it's yeah. it's not a morality or like 
like Geno Smith isn't worth this amount of money, but there is this other option out there that's familiar with the team. Yeah, I think uh, they're going to have to have one of those guys for sure, especially if they draft a quarterback. I mean, there's no guarantee that they might not have both those guys back next year if they if they sure. opt not to draft a quarterback. They might want to invest fully in other areas, which they certainly could do through the draft. I think stop trying course, to wiggle out of this, Alex. No, I, th- stop I think trying their to best wiggle. action. The more I think about it, is have one of those guys as your stopgap and draft a quarterback in but, the second the, round. I don't think it's the, a first round There's a big difference in those stopgaps, right? Because the Geno Smith one costs you $33 million, and there is the rollover cap issue. Like, that isn't just yes. – it's not no, just like you spend as much of your cap as you – one, I think they can win in 2024, is my opinion. Yeah. And and I think that the the team is better set up – and, and it's – so then the question is, is do, do, does your opinion change if the second player is – uh, Jordan Brooks, Leonard Williams, like who? How far down the list of free agents do you get before you go? Well, Geno Smith is worth more than. I'm, I'm basically trying to gauge what your opinion is on the gap between Drew Locke and Geno Smith yeah. and quantify it with a player that they could they think, could acquire. Yeah, I don't think it's that much, but I think the gap between them is small. The issue you have is that if you cut Geno Smith, let's say you cut Geno, you're probably not going to trade him, but let's say you cut him. All of a sudden, Drew Locke has a lot of leverage, and the cost for Drew Locke probably goes up. I know Drew Locke is not a hot commodity that people are going to line up to sign, but you, there are still teams out there that would pay him a lot to be a backup or even potentially vie for a starting So I said last club. week, two years, $15 million. What yeah. do, you, do, you, do you stand by that as he would sign that deal? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know what Drew Locke is looking for, what's important this to him. This slimy I mean, politician, be... Alex. Oh, my God. He, <laughs> well, I he's... mean, you hear these stories about guys who come to Seattle and, like, they actually want to stay here. You know, like, this is where right. they want to play. And uh, maybe that's the case with him or maybe he has somebody, somewhere else in mind or maybe he has an agent that's going to drive the conversation and say, I'm not letting you sign anywhere unless it's for the most money. We don't know that. Um, but I do think – if you're talking about saving some money by cutting Geno Smith and then having Drew Locke be the guy that is your de facto starter, unless you feel comfortable drafting a guy and starting him on day one, sure. then you know you have um, many different options that you can play with right now. But it seems like if that domino falls where you cut Geno Smith, well, that takes a number of options off the table right away because now you're either committing to a backup type quarterback or, or another version, a cheaper version of Geno Smith when you if you were to go out and sign somebody. But because Drew Locke's a free agent and because you just don't know what he's gonna exact I mean I'm sure they have some idea of what he's looking for money wise, but sure. that, that number can certainly change based on changing circumstances. So if you cut Geno Smith and you haven't secured something in place with Drew Locke, all of a sudden your quarterback situation gets very murky. I know we talked a little bit about this last week too. If you're Mike McDonald, I mean, you have to try and win right away. I mean, every coach wants to win right away. But to think that that uh, you have to kind of carry this momentum of what Seattle has been under Pete Carroll, which has been a destination for free agent football players when it was not previously. Like, even yeah. for as great as Holmgren was, they weren't bringing in the big-name free agents. They just weren't. Like, they were bringing in some guys that would help out and fill some gaps. But most of what they had was homegrown talent. And, you know, in the Pete Carroll era, everybody wanted to come to Seattle. And you have to continue that momentum. If you lose that momentum in your first couple of years on the job, if you're Mike McDonald, all of a sudden you are fighting a big uphill battle and it might be tough to get back. So you have to kind of try to win right away. And you got to determine it's like, even if you take a big swing on one of these rookie quarterbacks, having somebody in place that you can trust 
is very important. I think they're yeah. going to trust Geno Smith much more than Drew Locke. But the cost-benefit, cost I mean, those, right. these are things that you have to weigh. They've also both mentioned Schneider and McDonald have mentioned Drew Locke specifically, even though he's not under contract next year. So I, I'm, I'm trying to, to quickly pull up, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to get to it before we need to move on, but I think two years seven or two years fifteen million is actually pretty aggressive for Drew Locke. I don't think he's I don't think he's going to get two years fifteen million dollars from anybody. Yeah, I think the Seahawks. I think just like Geno, Drew Locke is a guy who's worth more to the Seahawks than any other organization in football. They seem to value him, and he hasn't shown enough for other teams to come calling for him the way that they would with like a Matt Flynn back in the day, for example, you know, that's just not going to happen for him right. anytime soon. So for him, it's like, Hey, even if they're telling you you're our stopgap for this year, that's a pretty good audition to potentially be a starter somewhere else for years to come. So, Oh, you know, I, I'm sure they'll figure it out, but my hope would be that they still draft a guy at quarterback because you can yeah. sit him for a year. You know, you can sit him. The, it, there's always this rush to start your rookie quarterbacks right away. And it's like sometimes it goes well, like CJ Stroud. Sometimes it goes bad, like Bryce Young. But if you sit them for a year or two, what you might end up having is like a Patrick Mahomes situation, like when he sat behind Alex Smith. So you have that luxury to have somebody else be the starter and still draft and develop a guy this year. That seems like the most prudent route. We know that the Seahawks very rarely do what the fans want, though. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, they've they've been, they have a good record of it right now. I think that's kind of last like, couple of years have been good. Yeah. There's some hope that what what they're doing, what what the fans have wanted, is what John Schneider has wanted also, and Pete Carroll has been the guy that's been stopping it. And I will say, I'm going to give you two examples: Spot Tracks market value, which love or hate that the uh, market value for Gardner Minshew, who I would think is more valuable than Drew Locke is a $5.3 million annual salary. Uh, Jameis Winston, who I would think is kind of in a similar category to Drew Locke, is uh, like $2.7 million, I think it was. <clears throat> so yeah, I think I think two years, $15 million is aggressive, and I'm intentionally being aggressive because I don't think he's going to make more than that. I don't think Drew Locke is going to make more than that. And whoever the guy is, the marginal guy you add on defense, but a $15 million defensive player i guess it doesn't have to be a defensive player but i think that's where we think they need to make additions where we think uh, mike mcdonald will want to make additions if it's jordan brooks patrick queen leonard williams one of those three guys are like the most obvious maybe it's someone we're not talking about to me it seems very obvious that geno smith is worth less than the sum of drew lock plus that defensive player so if you can do that to me it makes a lot of sense and I think either either scenario, draft a quarterback relatively high, take you know take a lottery ticket and see what you got. I'm in, in fact I'm in favor of them drafting a guy in the first round that they don't plan on starting in year one, even though I think they can win now because they have they have the opportunity to make like to clear up enough cap space I think to fill some holes on the roster, and I, yeah I think they can they can take a pretty big risk on that personally. Should we move on now? Because we're we're not like out of time, but we're gonna get we're closer and closer to being out of time. Let's talk about the Super Bowl. Let's do it. Yes, it was. Uh, I was just there for Usher. Did not disappoint. <laughs> I, w I will say, what an interesting thing about Usher's performance is it's the first time in years I've been certain someone wasn't lip syncing. But the reason I was certain he wasn't lip syncing is because at the beginning, the singing and dancing combination was not going well. Yeah, I mean, I, respect to Usher. He uh, he is out to be a performer. I mean, yeah. you don't usually see a guy 
dancing that hard while also singing because it's very taxing. It's yes, very, and I well, and he didn't that, he didn't hide the tax. Let's just say I, that. Yeah, I, I appreciate that he was as sweaty as he was because yeah. as somebody who sweats a lot myself. Thank you, Usher. Thank you for shining a spotlight on our pain. It's a, I also thought it was interesting that the world, like maybe it's the world of uh, white people, just rediscovered Alicia Keys. Like Alicia Keys. By the way, Alicia Keys looks exactly the same as she did. Like the I, I've yeah the tremendous looking lady, uh, but also like easily the I thought that like the most talented person on that stage, and a person who you're like thank you for not having her lip sync because she sounded incredible and uh, also ludicrous. Ludacris was great. Ludacris was actually, I, Ludacris was great. Yeah. yeah, Lil John was great. I do think I'm a little bit, bo I'm over the like strip club version of songs where it's like, we're going to cut two, two out of the four verses of this song. Yeah, you kind of have to do that. Every Super Bowl halftime performance is like that. It's like I know I hate like it. The, That's what I'm saying. It's the Instagram Reels version of music. It's just like yeah. snippet here, snippet there. You got to piece it all together. I was very surprised. I don't know if you were surprised by this as well. Um, oh, friend of the like podcast, Frank Castro. Uh, the the Seahawks just officially announced Grub. Okay. Also, by the way, two weeks from now, uh, Tony Daniel headlining on the 24th of February. At Bickerson's Brew House, and then I rescheduled my Bickerson's Brew House date to uh, April sixth in uh, Ballard because my wife was like ready to throw me off of a roof if I did as That's much fair. comedy as I have scheduled. So, especially days away from home. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I was just gonna say, uh, and you might have been surprised by this too. Little John's in pretty good shape, right? Um, like little, little John, Little John was kind of ripped, and it's surprising because in the two thousands, in the Little John era, the early two thousands. You, all you ever saw him in was like big baggy clothes. So you never really got an idea of like if Little John was or was not in shape. But he's going sleeveless at the Super Bowl halftime show and he's got some guns on him. I mean, I know he's only like 5'3, but he looks like he could at least, you know, take you down in a wrestling match or something. I've always thought of Little John. I think it's the same as uh, uh, I feel about Cat Williams, which is they, they kind of remind me of my Uncle Rick where they're like wiry in a way. My Uncle Rick was uh, alcoholic, drank 24. Miller High Life's a day, but maintained 140 pounds. And then we'd go camping with him, and this guy's just like carrying dr driftwood logs to make, you know, a fire or whatever. And he's just like all, it's like all just sinewy, sinewy fucking tendon strength or something. Like there's no muscle on this man, but he's some are not, you know, not like huge muscles, and he manages to be. And I kind of view that like that's what Cat Williams and Lil John are built like is just these like, yeah. No, I would I would be curious to to hear how Cat Williams and Little John feel being compared to one another because Yeah, fair. <laughs> I can't imagine Little John would be thrilled about that. But I get what you're saying. I get the I get the type of person. I don't like that type of person. By the way, if they don't want to be compared to each other, those two specific guys quit being these like flamboyant, like wildly dressing. I don't think they're that they're that different. Are they both from Atlanta too? Or no, uh, I know that uh I know that Cat's not from Atlanta actually, but Yeah. Um Anyway, uh, okay, let's talk about the game itself. I, I uh, the game was very boring for like three and a half quarters. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it wasn't because I was sitting there. We were watching with some friends and we just were like, we couldn't get over how boring the game was. It was just yeah. punts and defensive stops. And like, that's not I know it's a close game, but it's like I, I'm a big baseball fan, as are you. When people are like, I love a one oh baseball game. I'm like. I don't really, you know, and I was even a pitcher growing up and it's boring. It's just, boring. I don't, I don't mind a one Oh baseball game. I will say it was, it was somewhat boring. Um, but 
I don't know. I, I, I guess like the it always felt like it was building to a the end that I think we got the end that it was building to the whole time. Yeah. Um. It's it, I guess it's like watching, it's like watching a movie from the eighties where we're we're just not used to this past or this pace anymore. You know what I mean? We're used to a higher scoring pace. But I was, I enjoyed it all the way through. And I uh, one thing that I found interesting, and so I learned about the fourth quarter or the overtime rules with everybody else because oh everybody did. Everybody but, did. I mean, but what was... I found interesting, they, 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 uh, there's been a lot of scrutiny over San Francisco not uh, giving Kansas City the ball, taking the ball first. And first off, San Francisco players didn't know the rules. The coaching staff, I think, did. I even heard an interview with Steve Young this morning, and they were like, what do you think they should have done? And his answer made it obvious that even after having watched the game, Steve Young doesn't actually understand the rules because he's like, I would have taken the ball because I don't want Patrick Mahomes to get a chance to have the ball in his hands. And I'm like, you do not understand what the rules <laughs> no, are now. No one understands the rules. The broadcast didn't understand yeah. them. Um, Bill Vinovich, the extent to which he explained the rules was we're playing a whole new game, which that could mean any number of things. I mean, it's such a vague, <laughs> a vague description. It's like, okay, we didn't realize we, you, you, you're not really playing a whole new game. I get yeah. it. The thing that was very confusing is that, you know, when, when the Chiefs get down to the goal line with 10 seconds left or whatever, everyone's screaming at them to take a timeout because you figure in 10 seconds that this overtime period is over and one of two things happens. Either the game is tied and you kind of just start overtime all over again like it's college football, right? Or uh, the game just ends because you right. didn't tie the game. And what it actually came to be is that they would have got to finish their possession regardless it would have just they would have flipped fields like it was the end of the first quarter and the start of the second and they would have continued going on which made me think that the the, the simplest breakdown of the overtime rules was the game doesn't end until the chiefs win <laughs> that's kind of what it seemed like to me yeah <laughs> i think that the new game thing there's a lot of the field flipping carrying that statement that's because i had someone in my in a group chat that i'm in full of data guys that was like well if the game if it's just a new game why do they even have a game clock at this point and it was like well the reason is because at the end of that quarter they flipped the field and in, in yesterday's game that wouldn't have made a big difference but in a game where there's like a ton of wind outdoors there's elements involved that could make a huge difference in in yeah. uh, how the game is played it was just very confusing, and the NFL did a really bad job of explaining it to people. And sure. on top of that, this was a rule that was designed for the postseason. So these weren't even the rules they were operating under during the regular season, which to some degree I understand. You can have ties in the regular season. That's fine. Obviously, you can't in the postseason, so you have to amend things a little bit. But this was just so different than anything that the NFL has ever done rules-wise. And because it's the first time we're all seeing it, it just didn't make much sense to anybody. Yeah. And then the fact that, like, that wasn't communicated to the people who are responsible for communicating it to the fans made it even worse. So now there's just, yeah. there's always going to be this confusion. If you're a 49er fan, you probably feel like you were robbed of something because you just didn't, you weren't given the rules of the game in a way that made sense. And then to watch your team lose because of that. Well, but really, I, mean, I, I don't know what the, right? the, I don't think that the 49ers would have done anything differently. To me, this is like a, it's a, it's a lucky, I'm not saying you're, you're wrong, but it is lucky that we, that the this was not a situation where I think the rules affected the outcome. Um, I understand how they could have, but I don't. I don't think they did. That they did. I think they still kick a field goal. Maybe they're a little more aggressive, but I, nobody thought it was sudden death overtime. Obviously, yeah. you still even in even in the old rules, you're making the choice to give Kansas City the <clears> ball back, 
And even in the old rules, if Kansas City kicks a field goal, you play another sudden death possession. So I don't think that, that San Francisco acted in a way that was obvious that they would have done something different if they understood the rules differently. It seemed like the coaches understood the rules. I'm probably on the side of let Kansas City have the ball. Let's let's gather as much information as we can before we make the decision. But I don't think it's I don't think it's like the margin's probably pretty small in a circumstance where both teams get possession. And in fact, it might be that win probability is better because once it becomes sudden death, you have the first possession. If it becomes sudden death. Yeah, it's it's the strategy can be debated and will be debated ad nauseum because now we're introduced to this whole new set of rules that completely blows up the old strategy and the old way of doing things and lucky for nfl fans they have the entire offseason to think about it and i guess all of next regular season because we won't see those rules introduced until next postseason once again but just the fact that you have this different set of rules for the postseason and the way of doing things changes when you get to a different time of year that makes it very difficult to, to But it's operate. always been that way because they never would have allowed a postseason game to end in a tie before anyway. Like I, 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 yeah, one, but back I think, in the day they had the the sudden death, like the golden, like the golden goal where it was whoever scores first wins. I mean, that was at least easy to understand. It was, but now unfair. it's just one possession each plus sudden death. That's like, that's like the, it's so they, they explained it in a way that was not concise. I yes. agree with that. I, I, I'm well, somewhat the timing, on the timing mechanism though is different too. I mean, sorry to cut you off, but the timing mechanism is much different because now it's like you could theoretically play it for 60 minutes if your possessions took long enough, right? You could play. But 15, you could have done that before too. No, because before in the regular season, it's a timed 10 or 15 minutes, whatever they're doing. I can't remember off the top of my oh, head. Oh, but yeah, in the regular know. season, but it, but previous to this in the postseason, they still, it wouldn't have been, it, I actually don't know for sure. Does the, would they have had the clock roll over or would it have been? Uh, I don't know. I think it so, would have been timed period. And but then but either way, period, there, yeah. in the in the in the previous version, you would have flipped fields, you or you would have had another coin toss, maybe. But it's like it's not that different. It's in fact like I think a pretty significant enhancement for a moment like that. You don't want that game being decided by a field goal, and the best quarterback in the NFL right now doesn't get a possession. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I really feel like. And I've been an advocate of this for years. I know this is like a divisive topic, but I think they should just adopt the college overtime rules. And I, I they can modify it. I mean, I know college. I don't like where start, they start on like the four yeah, yard yeah. line or whatever. I, I think college starts at like the twenty five. It's already like a gimme field goal. Like if you were to just in college, if you just kick the field goal immediately, most kickers are going to convert it. So let's say you start at the fifty yard line, right? Like each team gets to start at the fifty yard line. Um, if you both convert and tie the game up, then we just flip the field and do it all over again, right? I think that way of doing things it accomplishes a lot. A, if you're worried about player safety, they're not out there running around for a bunch of extra time. It's just possession by possession, basically. So it's going to save you some time there. And then also just like every snap in that scenario is critical. Whereas when you have the entire length of the field and kind of an undefined amount of time in which to score, it doesn't make every snap as critical. Uh, All you're worried about is whether or not you turn the ball over in that situation. So I think they have to this requires some work still. There's still some tweaking that has to happen to get it right. 
I don't know if they'll get there anytime soon. I just I, it, I don't it, mind it as is. I just need people to understand it. That's I think that's the biggest yeah. deal. Is I think if people understood it better, we wouldn't hate it. I'm also, by the way, I'm losing ground on a crying baby, so we are <laughs> running out of uh, we are. By the yeah, and yeah. I, also the most kid talk we've had, and fuck you, Matt Holt. Deal with it. We're talking. I'm I'm going to talk about these goddamn kids if they're crying in my ear right now. Um, I want. I, I guess I'll get to the part about uh, Patrick Mahomes and Brock Purdy. I don't think Brock Purdy's a game manager. It's like this is the new like slur for Brock Purdy. I think he's a very good quarterback. I think he what he does very well is what everyone's saying. He processes, gets rid of the ball quickly, not because he has some lightning fast release, but because he processes the defense very quickly, makes a decision very quickly. Um, there's been a bunch of discussion about Patrick Mahomes, whether or not he is the GOAT, when he will become the GOAT, the GOAT, the GOAT, the GOAT. He's not the GOAT. It's obviously Tom Brady still. There's like not even really a discussion. My question for you is, is it, is it completely obvious to you that he's number two? And if not, how close is he? And who is number yeah, two? Yeah, it's, it is cool for the NFL that they can have this Brady-Mahomes discussion for years to come. Yeah, It's very much like Jordan and LeBron, honestly. Like, sure. Much like Brady, Jordan had all the rings, all the cachet, all the hardware, and at one point in time was the most you know, one of the most recognizable athletes in the world, right? Yeah. You can say that about both Tom Brady and Michael Jordan. The thing about LeBron and Patrick Mahomes, it's very similar. I think in each case that LeBron is the superior athlete to Michael Jordan. Patrick Mahomes is the superior athlete to Tom Brady. He's just a better, like you watch him throw the ball. He's got better arm strength, better decision-making. He's just quicker at the quarterback position. But that's not to say that he'll ever get to seven championships the way Tom Brady did. So until you can do that sort of thing, same thing with LeBron, until you can eclipse your predecessor's uh, championship capability, no one's going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I think but, it, I think it would be, it would be an argument if he doesn't get to seven for sure. There would be like a continued argument. Yeah. I like I'll argue that LeBron is better than Jordan, personally. But yeah, I get that there's LeBron. but I, I get that there's an argument though. Like I'm not I don't think it's right. like so right. cut and dry. Where I think like it's so obvious that Brady Brady leads the the world in passing for his career. Lead, you know the most touchdowns ever, the most postseason everything. Like the He's it's like by so far and away Tom Brady that that is like not even a discussion I think worth having. But is yeah. like is Montana winning four versus Mahomes winning three by age twenty eight? Is do you put is Montana presently ahead of him? Is it just on championships when you're talking about the second place guy, or do you put guys into that discussion like Dan Marino, like Peyton Manning, like John Elway, who? had great careers, Drew Brees, maybe, who only won one, but, like, do you put, like, how much do you then weigh the third championship versus some of those guys? Two championships, Steve Young, another one. Yeah. But like it's 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 weird with with quarterbacks because quarterbacks are always recognizable. You know, all those guys you just mentioned, they still show up in ads today, even though a sure. lot of them have been retired for years. Um, and obviously, when you're talking about like basketball and Jordan and LeBron, it's tougher to stand out in basketball because, the you know, you're a little bit more positionless. Right. There's not one position in the game of basketball that dominates the space the way quarterback dominates the football field. Right. So the unique thing about Mahomes, I think, is just the overall popularity that you see among you know him and brady compared to some of those other guys that you mentioned i think that's kind of what separates these guys and then when you think about just on-field performance you know for all the talk about how great mahomes arm talent is and the, the fact that he's mobile a little bit more mobile than brady ever was certainly and a pretty good runner when he has to be um 
the way that they kind of play the game and throw the ball around is similar to me because even if you just watched yesterday's game and that was the only time you saw the Chiefs play this year, there is a lot of just short passes, taking what's given to you, and really just executing in kind of that middle space in order to set up the bigger plays. You know, I think when you think of like a big arm quarterback, you just assume I think this CJ Stroud would be a good example of this this year. You see the highlight packages and it's just like deep ball, deep ball, deep ball, deep ball. Or like when Russ was at his best, just throwing deep balls for dimes all the time. But the, the really good quarterbacks, the Brady's and the Mahomes, a lot of what they're doing is not on the highlight reel. It's just dumping it off to a tight end or dumping it off to a running back, getting five or 10 yards out of that and like moving the chains consistently. And yeah. when they have to unleash the big throw, they're able to do that too. They just don't have to do it on every single play the way a guy like Russell Wilson had to. I mean, Russ seemed like he was always going for the home run. The really good yeah. quarterbacks don't have to do that. Yeah, I think that was people thought that he wasn't allowed to be a rhythm passer. And I think part of the deal was maybe he wasn't really able to be a rhythm passer. And honestly, like it's it's funny that it's like we've kind of admitted late in his career, later in his career, that his height actually has had an impact on his long-term ability to be a quality quarterback. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a with, with Russ or even with Breeze, there's an element to that. And I think what Mahomes does so well is he's just, he sees the space in front of him. Like when he turns to do his check down dump off, it's not like he's turning, looking at the check down guy and then throwing the ball, waiting that, hesitating that half second. A lot of quarterbacks do that. When he, turns to that check down guy he's already releasing the ball he knows that guy's there he knows that guy's there the whole time he knows the free five yards are there for him at any point in time but he's able to go and read through that entire progression across the field and know where he wants to go i mean this, this dude won this year with no receivers basically yeah marquez valdez scantling can like 50 percent of the time catch a ball if it's dropped into his hands and you know barely ever gets open and yet they still won with guys like that the, the, yeah. the game winning touchdown yesterday is to mccall hardman who's a retread he was dropped by the chiefs dropped by the jets and back with the chiefs now and it's like they're winning with nobodies that that's kind of what brady always did brady was notorious for that and then things really kicked into gear when they went out and got him randy moss so if they get one big receiver that's you know not travis kelsey in kansas city who knows if the sky's the limit for Mahomes? but he could certainly there's more there than we've seen already, and he's already won three championships. It is kind of interesting, the parallels of, uh, well, first off, Andy Reid's legacy is interesting. He was the guy for years who just couldn't win one. And now he's, and now, by the way, Kyle Shanahan is that guy. But uh, <laughs> but uh, Andy Reid was that guy for so long, and now, luckily, I mean, it's it's good because I, I, I like Andy Reid, but I, he's going to be considered one of the greatest coaches of all time, which he probably deserved anyway. But now it's going to be less of a debate because he has won the big one three times. Um, I think similarly to the Patriots, it's interesting that the passing attack is kind of built around an elite tight end. And then you're able to kind of fit these other guys around him. And, and did Randy Moss, did he win a championship with New England? I know that they had the 18-1 and one season. Uh, I don't I don't remember. I mean, I feel like just law of averages, he probably did, but I can't remember the years. <laughs> like, they were winning most of the time. So I, I know. Probably, but I don't know. 
No, I, I do see what you're saying, though. I think the interesting thing about Andy Reid is that he's he's like the disciple of the Mike Holmgren coaching tree, the Bill Walsh coaching tree, yeah. the West, the original West Coast oh. offense that has been kicking around for 30 to 40 years now. <laughs> I just and, hold on. I, I just I, I gotta explain to people who watch the video of this. I just react. I had an ad start so loud because I'm trying to pull up if Randy. Oh my god! I just about shit my pants. I feel like that would add yeah. to it. I mean, you know, oh. especially if you're just listening on audio. Oh my um, God. But, you know, this the offense that Andy Reid runs is not, it's not particularly innovative for the modern day world, right? Like, he's been running right. the same offense for forever and it continues to work. I mean, I but think it, he's modified it quite a bit, though. I mean, there's a lot modified, more motion yeah. than like the traditional West Coast offense. Sure. And but also, been, by the way, Randy Moss, no championships. So. Sorry, which is, is surprising. He played three years in New England, which must be he played in the three years they didn't the win a championship. The only yeah. three-year stretch, probably. So he was the problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah but no, I, I I hear what you're saying, but I think the elements of the West Coast where you're still like using kind of the short passes to effectively replace the running game, or like yeah. you know just keep the chains moving. There's still a ton of that in their offense. Whereas sure. you watch a guy like um, you watch. Mike McDaniel in, in Miami or, or, you know, one of those guys, the newer guys that get labeled as like the big innovators with offense. And they don't have a lot of those. They, they have some of those West Coast elements, but a lot of a lot more home run type passes or deep balls, even like a guy like Ryan Grubb, having watched so much of his his tenure at Washington. It's a lot of deep routes. Still. Well, what I would say about McDaniel and what I think is going to be true of Grubb also is we also saw a lot of like short screens to receivers and we did see a fair amount of like you know back shoulder relatively short throws from Penix so it's like short and long and not a lot of like living at the 15 to 25 yard pass where like I think the pre-West Coast offense was so it's like it's kind of like the the blend of West Coast principles and the like kind of uh, air raid stuff that goes way down like the spread stuff that sends yeah. guys way downfield and it's I mean I, I it's you know, good on Andy Reid for being able to adapt to that. You don't hear a lot about 60-year-old, you know, mid-60s, nearly 70-year-old coaches. I don't know how old he actually is. He could be 31. Um, I mean, Bel Belichick and Pete Carroll were kind of like carrying that torch for a long time, and now Andy Reid is kind of the, uh, yeah. the grandfather of the NFL in a way. Yeah, true. And I, but I, I think like good on him for being able to adapt because you don't hear about that from guys with his legacy at his age very often. And so I, that, I do yeah. think that's like that it is impressive because I mean, it's like, it's like, uh, <laughs> this is going to be a tough example for some of our audience, but my dad is a Republican. He's a conservative. And finding out that he didn't vote for Trump was like, oh shit, he actually is like consuming information still. He's not just voting on straight up loyalty, right? You yeah. know what I mean? No, I think that's a good that's a good analogy. I think uh, you know, with with Belichick and Pete Carroll, they both refused to adapt at the end and it's cost them their jobs. It took a long sure. time because they had built up uh so much cachet with the teams that they were coaching but ultimately their failure to adapt is what spelled their demise and for a guy like andy reed to actually be able to adapt to a new way of doing things which you know granted i don't think he's had to adapt too much because he's got the greatest quarterback on the planet right now that yeah. helps a lot that's gonna that's going to fix a lot of the problems that you might have with innovation or a new playbook or personnel or whatever. Same thing yeah. with Belichick in that, like when Brady was there, 
clearly once Brady left, it kind of exposed all the flaws that Belichick's system had. But when sure. Brady was there, he masked a lot of those flaws. And I think that's just a, that's a reality of what a good quarterback can do and really yeah. kind of speaks to just the pairing you have when you have a good coach and a good quarterback. I, I think that the um, I think that the last topic we have it, on the Super Bowl is Taylor Swift. And uh, <laughs> one, I think this is perfectly fitting that we're barely going to talk about her because we got to go to your your uh, final topic. But uh, I mean, we don't I have just, to go to my final. My final topic can be done at any point in time. I, I mean, it's it's fair, but but the I I think like one thing I will say about Taylor Swift, I will take the stance on Taylor Swift, which is one I do not care if they show her or don't show her they don't i did not find it distracting at all i also think like it's just like if if you know a mega star if beyonce was dating one of the players on the team if michael jackson had been dating well if he'd been dating one of the players on the team i think we'd have seen him a lot because it was a different time and i don't think i don't but i mean like if if somebody who was a mega star if celine dion or or uh selena or somebody you know somebody who was just like a global sensation uh selena is is that what you said yeah that's an interesting deep cut okay yeah fine i mean maybe if she was at a soccer game it would have been a little more there might have been a little more uh airtime but you know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's like it's. I don't understand the thing about Taylor Swift in particular because she's such a. Uh, uh, oh yeah, here's uh, our pal Bob Springer. Uh, just got here. Not sure if you talked about them yet, but damn good hat game today, fellas. Yeah, that's uh, the, we talked about them at the very beginning. Alex has on like a metallic, old school Mariners trident logo. In a, it's like a a, mo- a mix of modern and vintage. And then I just have, I love this old Seahawks stuff and I hope that it sticks around. Um, yes. But yeah, Taylor Swift, I don't give a shit. Like, fine, keep showing her, don't show her, it doesn't matter to me. I, I'm unoffended by her. I don't think she's a psyop. I don't think that she's, like, I don't think that she was somehow controlling the outcome of the game or anything like that. I'm. I mean, I'm the so- NFL did, it, did itself no favors with the script because I shouted the script about a dozen times during the game yesterday. Anytime something, or two days ago, anytime something went right for the Chiefs. It did feel like it was scripted. Uh, I know it's probably not, but it certainly felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was full WWE. It's like you guys had this storyline that you carried all throughout the season, and then in the yeah. end it paid off. I mean, it's like straight out of a movie. As it's funny. As- what I think is funny yeah. is that you do believe the NFL is scripted, and also that we landed on the moon. And I don't believe the NFL is scripted, and I don't think we landed on the moon. So that's <laughs> where we differ. And I don't know. I think both of us fall on some side of the psyop fence in this case, and uh, whatever you know. Yeah, it's people uh, are people are complex. I do feel like at this point it's gotten so so meta that you know people are making up an invisible they as far as they yeah. are mad at Taylor Swift you know at times where it's like I don't think anyone's that upset I get that there are some loud voices on social media or whatever but those guys are they're always going to be that <laughs> that's yeah. troll for everything so you know all she does is really kind of replace some of the crowd shots instead of looking at some some sad fan after a play or some happy fan after a play is just like sipping on their beer and being a fat slob. You get to look at Taylor Swift instead. Isn't that better? I feel like that's better. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Plus, every time they do a shot of her in the in her suite, there's always somebody new. Every game, you're like, is that <laughs> is that true. Blake Lively? Is that Ice Spice? How do they know each other? I, Ice Spice the- is a tough one for me because it's like you have all of these classic artists on, and you're like, <laughs> how do they even? Because how old is Ice Spice? Yeah. Ice Spice has He's to young. be pretty He's young. Be pretty young. Yeah. And, and I gotta say yeah. about Ice Spice, it's a jarring look. I think we just lost Casey, but I believe he was going to go off about uh, Ice Spice's look, which is fine. That's, uh, you know, it might not be everybody's taste, and that's okay. Very popular, however. And, um, yeah, it is fascinating to see what happens to these celebrities when they get together. Like, I want to know how they all became friends. Like, what's the story there? How did they get to know each other? Oh, hey. You're back. Yeah. I'm just, I was just delivering. I was, I was, uh, I was ranting play. still, and I and I felt. Like, yeah, no, it's, it's okay. It was probably for the best. Where what did I, where did I leave off on? Oh, I spice, but but I was what I was saying is, I just want to know the backstory of how they all got to know each other because I find that stuff fascinating. It's like they really don't. Their musical styles are completely different. They ordinarily you wouldn't think of them as being in the same circles. Even just finding out that Taylor Swift and Blake Lively were like best friends, which I had no idea about. That's fascinating to me. Like I want to yeah. know how all these people come together. You know? Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, uh, the Ice Spice thing. I, I, what I was saying, I was I was uh, saying that she has a jarring look, which uh, you know people may hate or love. The the. It's just unlikely to me that this lady who's 10 years younger than she seems like an old lady trying to cling to her youth. That's the only moment I've felt that. And she's 34. She's not an old lady. She's very young and spry. Yes. Yeah. Um, Anyway, let's you pitchers and catchers reporting. We can make that our uh, our uh, final topic time of year. It's a great time of year. We get to uh, see gratuitous shots of Arizona and Florida over the next few weeks. Um, we get to look at sun, which we don't often get to do here. So that'll be fun. And, uh, you know, more importantly than the pitchers and catchers reporting, which is if you're a baseball fan, it's always a great time of year, a story. I wouldn't even call it a story, but some photos have surfaced in the last 24 hours or so of new MLB jerseys and how terrible they are. Sure. And, uh, it is. You know, over the years, MLB for a number of years had Majestic, the brand Majestic made their uniforms and to the best of my knowledge, Majestic is basically known for nothing else besides making MLB jerseys. I know that they consider themselves an apparel company, but, um, you know, who wears Majestic brand stuff? So they were all about the jerseys. They fully immersed the jersey game. And then MLB turned things over to Nike. Nike's more or less, they, they stuck with the status quo. They were fine. Now they've turned things over to Fanatics. And Fanatics, if you're not familiar with Fanatics and you're a sports fan, um, they are the great monopoly we should be most scared of in the world. Sure. <laughs> Fanatics makes some real cheap, low-quality garbage apparel, and now they are taking that game to Major League Baseball. They already have taken it to hockey, so you know they do have some rights with hockey. And if you've ever uh, like purchased a Kraken jersey, if you're from around Seattle or any hockey jersey, um, there are two brands that make hockey jerseys. There's Adidas, which actually ends after this year, and there's fanatics, and the difference between the two jerseys is vast. They they look the same, they feel and wear completely different because fanatics. I don't know where they outsource their production to and the materials that they use, but all of their shirts feel like tissue paper, and now they're spreading that to uh, professional jerseys. Apparently, 
Is this? Uh, do you see? The, has this popped up under your screen? Do you see my my window here? It has. It has. This is. Uh, there's been a few teams. Uh, the Mariners, I think, were one of the first ones to surface, and I think they probably surfaced because they made a big deal out of fixing the lettering on the backs of jerseys. The old Mariner lettering on the backs of these jerseys was kind of a punchline. It was all over the place. Sure. So their their way of fixing that was by shrinking the font down to a nice 12 points and uh, <laughs> just like printing it right off a sheet of paper instead of doing anything fun with it. You got to bring a set of binoculars to the game <laughs> if you want to read anybody's. Uh, um, so what's your what's your outlook on uh, on this season? I guess is the is the real question because. Uh, Oh, you want to talk about the Mariners as a whole? Oh, it's yeah, and we, and we can go very brief. Negative. Very okay. negative. I think gotcha. um, even the, the moves that they made, I think, can certainly help them. Uh, I don't feel like they've gotten much better or much worse than what they were last year. And they were right. close. You know, they were close to getting in last year. But they haven't. The, the problem with the Mariners, as we know, is they never take the next step. They just shuffle some things around, and they're basically the same team they were the year before, right? I mean... That's kind yeah. of what they do because they the don't Mariners want to spend act the, money. the way that you want the Huskies and the Seahawks to act, which is as these like conservative, uh, as you, though they have some. That's brand. how I want the, those teams to act. That's not how I want them to act. Now you desperately want you wanted fucking take, you wanted uh, the ghost of Jim Lambright to come back and coach the Huskies. That's how, <laughs> I don't want, that's how I don't traditional want those you teams are. To take, I think here's the thing in football in general, whether it's college or NFL. The risk-reward scenario is so much different than it is in baseball. In baseball, taking the big risk can pay off because you don't have a salary cap, whereas taking big risks in football with a salary cap or in college with NIL and, and the way that it all works and the transfer portal and all that, taking those big risks can really set you back for a long time. But taking the big risks in baseball, this, like money can solve everything. This was a joke, Alex. It was a joke. Relax. I take it very seriously. <laughs> very seriously. The, the, Mariners, the Mariners are like my diet plan. The Mariners are, we're going to go out. We're just going to do the same thing. You every don't take year. it very we're not, seriously. We're not going to take the next step. I, I, would like, I would like to lose all the weight that I desire, but sure. I don't want to make the life changes to actually do that, right? That's yeah. So I'll do the bare minimum to make sure I just stay the same so I just don't get bigger. I'll stay the same. That's what the Mariners do every single year, every yeah. single year. They just don't, they don't want to gain any more weight. They don't want to lose any weight. They're not serious. They're not a serious team. Yeah. And yet I'm wearing all their apparel. Yes, you're you're decked out in uh, expensive special edition apparel in both cases. So. I love the Mariners and I hate them. I mean, they they have driven me crazy. I'll, they'll always be my first sports love, and yet they do not. We do not. They don't reciprocate. They're yeah. just not reciprocating for me. It's going to be a frustrating season, and then also they. It's like in the in the realm of real possible outcomes for the Mariners is like a 95 win season where they make the playoffs like it's it's yeah. uh it's interesting so yeah I'm not I, the pitchers and catchers reporting it's funny because I guess in my life I've just replaced all the preseason baseball stuff with I'm very excited about the draft coming up so we could talk about both preseason baseball and the draft a lot as the year goes on I should tend to this child I heard her crying a little while ago we won in the short term. We won the short term battle with this child, but uh, I will lose the war if I don't go fight uh, right now. So we covered all our big topics for today, and we saved true. some. We have some in the chamber for next week, although you know stuff will develop. So yes, of uh, course. We and did, uh, and once again, tweet at Alex if you want to hear this podcast every single day of the week, or at least Monday through Thursday, or at least. 
Tuesday, Thursday, something like this. I'm trying to squeeze the, another episode a week out of this guy. Shorter episodes more often. Let him know. Let us know. If you feel the opposite, just, you know, fuck off. Don't tell us. Uh, Casey McLean Comedy, CaseyMcLeanComedy.com for any stand-up dates. I'll be at Tacoma Comedy Club uh, on Wednesday. And, um, God, I'm all over the place. And uh, including, most importantly, March 15th, 16th, recording a special at the new club. And uh, April 6th with my pal Frank Castro. And then monthly at Bickerson's Brewhouse. And if you're up in that area, by the way, they make some great beer. Go check out Bickerson's Brewhouse, both in Ballard and in uh, in Renton. I'm uh, I'm a big fan of their beer and a big fan of Frank and Sean, the, uh, the owners. And uh, thanks for listening to this podcast and uh yeah what do you have to say alex a lot of times you let me just ramble to the end and then you leave them hanging so you for once take a goddamn stance well, at the you, end of the you, podcast you have, too you have the whole promotion aspect i don't have anything to promote so i just appreciate uh, your company that's all i don't know chuck Wu. Kel- this has got to be a this has got to be a bot but this is, uh, good morning everyone in w- what time zone is this person that it's the morning there's no way these are real comments from a from a poor sports fan here that's a made-up name man that's the kind of name that they put on a nintendo game from back in the day <laughs> yeah, the guy sitting clean up for the seattle salmon uh baseball team all right that's we've gone too far off the rails uh bye everybody